The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning our financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Good morning, Don. And you brought a special guest to the show today. This is pretty exciting. Yes, it's always nice to have Philip Peterson here. He's been on the show, uh, I guess, the last time was just before the summer. And uh, he's the chief investment strategist for IG Wealth Management. And you know what? I'm sure all the listeners are thinking, okay, that's a great title, but what the heck does that mean? So maybe you can probably describe it a lot better than me, Philip. Certainly. And and first, you know, thank you, Don. And thank you, Scott, for having me on today. It's my great pleasure to join you. Uh, The role of the chief investment strategist at IG Wealth Management really, I would say, covers three broad areas. One is to research uh, where we are in the economic cycle, the market cycle, find the opportunities of how investors can make money uh, in the near future, given all the data that we have in front of us. Second role is to actually implement those ideas into some of our portfolios that I that I manage. Uh, and then the third one would be communicated to our, our key stakeholders, our clients, our advisors, and you know, the general public um, in, uh, in events such as this, um, or, or write-ups, we do a podcast, uh, a number of different media. Yeah, I've, uh, I've seen your face on BNN. Um, so, and I know that, how often did you get on, on that show? Uh, I'm on there about every other week. Okay. So, yes. So when I do catch it occasionally, I say, Hey, there, I know that person. So, and, and again, it's kind of interesting. So to get prepared, what would your normal day be in terms of prep and, and the things that you have to read and data that you have to kind of absorb? Well, we have, um, I would say, upwards of about 300 different data sets that we track and, and you know, economic and financial models that we update on an ongoing basis. So any given day, you can imagine there's going to be releases put out in the United States, Europe, Canada, or other areas around the world that you know, are important to us. Largely, these would be you know, economic releases, but they could also be earnings releases um, that all go into kind of our inputs. Um, and the output of that is, okay, here's here's the direction we believe the markets are headed towards, and this is how we can make money. So as you say, Don, it's a lot of reading, uh, catching up on on uh, some of the movements in the market. If if um, there's a speech by the you know, Bank of Canada governor, you know, you're you're reading that, um, updating all of our models, uh, looking at new ways of, of uh, identifying some of the trends. So it, the day is never the same. Because right, the information right. is constantly changing. So at the end of the day, a business news junkie. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but with all that right now, um, I, I think it's safe to say there seems to be a general uneasiness um, in, in general. Uh, you're talking to people, I think they're putting on a brave face, uh, but they know that maybe their daughter, daughter's mortgage or son's mortgage is coming up for renewal in, in a few months and they're not sure or somebody's got their house for sale and it's not selling as quickly and yet they they got a they're purchasing on their other end it just seems like there's lots of uneasiness would would that be safe to say i think it's fair to say because you know there there are elements of the canadian economy that we haven't seen uh in decades and, and i would say many canadians have never seen in their lifetimes and that's the fact that interest rates are where they are I and mean, we have the bank of right. canada overnight rate of five percent we have mortgages in the range of between six and seven percent. 
Um, and we haven't seen that in, in 20 years. And so that is a bit of a shock to, to some people. And it is creating some uneasiness because what, it, what it's doing is it's forcing um, that household disposable income that would have gone to you know, restaurants or, or travel or, or savings or who knows what into your mortgage. Um, and so there's no real benefit economically to that. Um, but this is all in an effort of the Bank of Canada trying to slow things down to bring inflation back to their 2% target. It'll be a while to get there. But in the meantime, yeah, it's creating uneasiness with, uh, with the Canadian consumer. Right. And if you're looking at the, you know, the markets in general, um, how would you sum up 2000 and 2023 year to date? And again, coming off a, a kind of a 2022 was a year to forget. And, and there seemed to be a lot of inertia and, and hope and a brand new year. And obviously that's, uh, you know, optimism coming into the year. But that seemed to, you know, last for a couple quarters. And then all of a sudden that third quarter, uh, it kind of got a little bumpy. And then all kind of a lot of fear again. So maybe you could kind of sum up how this year's gone so far. Well, in general, I would say the year has gone better than expected from our view. Oh. Um, And the reason being is that we came into 2023 with a modest view on earnings on corporate profitability. And that's what we've gotten. We've gotten, you know, if you look at where corporate profits are, they're actually down on the S&P 500 year over year. So, you know, we've had lackluster uh, performance out of uh, out of companies from a profitability perspective. Um, yet the market in the U.S., so Canada to lesser extent, um, but in the United States, we've seen outperformance from where we started at the beginning of the year. The volatility that we saw in the in the uh, third quarter, and really it was you know, J- July 31st was the peak for the S&P 500, so the U.S. benchmark for stocks, and then we saw some volatility. It's actually been quite normal. Yeah, okay. I, I have had some comments from from some clients saying, wow, you know, it seems really volatile. We haven't even had really a correction in this market yet, you know, being down by more than 10%. Um, and that typically is what you would see once every other year. So the the volatility that we had in the summer you know, has, has been fairly normal and, and really nothing compared to uh, or in line with what you can compare uh, historically. Isn't it weird that none of the, none of those statements ever come out on the front page of a paper? Exactly. Th- this time it's normal. <laughs> oh, all I hear is it's down so many points. The worst day since March of this year, or this is the worst week since February of this week, and and it, it's it's alarming. And and what you when it goes up, a, you know, a decent week, you'll never seem to see best week since this time of this year. It only seems to be down, you know, you know, bad news sells, mm-hmm. and and it gets, you know, if if you're talking to clients, most of the people would have thought that third quarter was fairly dismal, and, yeah. and there was a lot of news. Maybe it was a slow slow news quarter or something, but all the news seemed to be negative, and they seemed to forget all any of the positive weeks. Exactly. And when you look at it at the end of the third quarter, I mean, the markets were down between, I think, three and four percent for the major indices. But let's go back a year. You know, if you go back to the end of September 2022, you know, since then, you've got the U.S. market that's up about 20 percent. The Canadian market's up six international markets that are up 20. So, you know, you need to take a broader perspective than just, you know, what's happening today or this week or this month with respect to where we've come and where we might be going from the markets. Yeah, no question. And, and I'd like to see your your input on on all the different things that you're attacking the headlines, and rightfully so. You've got a war in Ukraine, and now, as of last weekend, 
uh, or a week or so ago, a week ago, was a, a war in Israel. How is that uncertainty affecting the markets? Well, not at all, actually, if you look at the market response or, or the market activity uh, this past week following the, the uh, attacks in, in the Middle East. Um, and, and this is where we just finished a podcast on this, to be honest with you, where we have to put our emotions and personal biases aside when we think about investing, because what happens in the headlines and what happens from the geopolitical perspective doesn't often have any meaningful impact to corporate profitability and therefore the markets. So, so yeah, at the end of the day, how much do companies make and how much does it affect their bottom line? And I, and again, you're absolutely right. There, there's a huge emotion and, and rightfully so with, um, you know, particularly the latest uh, war in Israel, but, you know, the ongoing war in Ukraine. And, and it seems that you, you end up getting a little numb from it. And you're starting to see that with Ukraine a little bit. Um, you're starting to see less people, you know, less countries wanting to fund that war. But at the end of the day, it seems to be from a from a return standpoint, a non a non event now, because certainly when it first happened, the markets reacted immediately. And would I be correct in saying, well, if that war in Ukraine wasn't there and it never happened, would this new one in Israel would have would it have had an effect? Or are we just kind of used to war now? Well, I... The, the kind of cynical side of the story is that there's always some conflict going on somewhere. Uh, it's whether the news is picking it up or not. For example, you know, there, Saudi Arabia and Yemen have effectively been at war for a number of years now. So and, and that's not something being talked about. Um, so, you know, I think it's really what drives the headlines as far as you know, Russia and, and Ukraine. It had a very short term impact on commodity prices, but those have all settled out. In fact, if you go back uh, if you say let's strip out what happened you know, uh, February 2022, would the market be any different? No, I don't think it, it would be any different because again, it didn't impact profitability of companies. And same thing with this conflict; it's not likely to impact the profitability of companies in Canada or the United States. It's not going to change whether consumers here are paying their cell phone bill or not. Gotcha. And in fact, um, there may be even increased consumption of other things. Um, you know, obviously weapons is, is an industry. Yeah, potentially. I mean, you know, you go back in history and, and we think immediately that that war can be bad. And, and then this might be more coincidence than anything else. But when the United States invaded Iraq, uh, when the U.S. invaded Iraq, then at that time you had a uh, positive response in the markets. That was the bottom of the market in 2003 that just took off from there. Yeah. And and so this past week, uh, and the, the big factor that everything is really seen seems to be moving the market more than anything is inflation. It's it's where interest rates are being gauged to. It's also where particularly growth stocks seem to be pinned to because they, they're you know going up future values of what those stock prices could be. And you, we'll let you elaborate a bit more on that. But inflation came in at 4.1 percent, um, which excluded food and energy prices down from 4.3. Now, going back about a year ago, these were over 8%. So this is in the U.S., by the way. Um, this came out just uh, Thursday last week. And uh, the CPI in general um, was 3.7. And uh, this was about the same as August. And they kind of expected 3.6. So I guess going forward, what does this mean? Is it going to have any impact or is this kind of what they expected? Well, largely, I would say it's what they, what we expected. And when we model out inflation over the, the coming six months, you know, we see inflation being kind of stuck in this three and a half percent range. 
you know, it, it's just the kind of the inputs to inflation are going to keep it there. The question is whether the Federal Reserve and then the Bank of Canada and Canada, for that matter, are going to be patient enough to wait for the gradual decline of inflation that will take us well into 2024, or are they going to say we're not moving or it's not moving fast enough? We need to take further action and raise rates further. I'm, I'm hoping for uh, the pause as opposed to the further hike. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. And I, I'm just looking. What's with this two percent? Why is this so important? I'm, I'm looking at a chart behind me here. Three point five percent has been the average inflation rate since 1935. And yet they got, you know, they want to get it down to two. And, you know, I guess it was there for a while. But what's so sexy about this 2% number? In truth, I don't think anyone can tell you. I, I saw I saw an interview where, where uh, Chair, uh, Chairman Powell was asked on that, and, and he couldn't give a, a clear answer. I think it's an arbitrary number that we've just kind of anchored ourselves to. Um, but at some point, you're exactly right. You know, longer term, inf- normal inflation is closer to three. So I think at some point down the road, central bankers might have to revisit that target and say 2% is not achievable. You know, maybe three is the real number. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. And our guest is Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist for IG. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. Our special guest is Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist for IG. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management, 905-972-7420. Boy, what a fascinating discussion uh, we're having right here regarding the last quarter. You know what? I love having Philip here with us because this is the stuff you can't find in the papers. You're getting the alarming time, the 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 you know newspaper grabbing kind of headline news, but you don't get the real goods. And this is what Philip is bringing us today, which is just fantastic. And so, you know, we we're just talking about inflation and in certain areas of we're actually down um, in the last quarter or the last year. And used cars make sense because there was a they couldn't get computer chips back in back during the pandemic. So used car sales are going through the roof. You couldn't get new cars. So they've come down a bit. Um, apparel, for whatever reason. I didn't think anybody was really buying a whole lot of clothing uh, during the pandemic. So um, apparently it's gone down. On the other hand, um, gas prices are up. Okay. Motor vehicle insurance is up in the U.S. Sporting events prices are up. And surprisingly, hotel prices, which... I'm pretty sure that has all to do with Taylor Swift concerts <laughs> because there seems to be no shortage of money for, for any of her shows. And I, and I'd actually, you know, just a, what kind of effect North American wide or certainly in the U S has she, has she moved the needle in terms of the economy? Hey, you guys need to get her in an IG sweatshirt somewhere. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that- uh, but anyway, you're starting to see, you know, 
just in the NFL alone, if she she's now you know dating somebody from the Kansas City Chiefs, they're all, all the ticket sales. If she's going to be at the game, they've doubled. So certainly there seems to be no shortage of money for those events, which is kind of interesting. In in the face of these inflationary times, there is money out there. Okay, um, but uh, you know what? What is this? What's real? And if inflation actually dropped by say one percent, another one percent, because it's already gone from eight down to you know call it in the mid threes. What's that going to do with the markets? What is it going to do with the bond markets? What, what do you see, Philip? Well, you know, we, when we look forward, we do see inflation coming down um, closer to the, let's say, the Bank of Canada's target of 2% or the Fed's target of 2%, but it's going to be very, very gradual. And in fact, yeah, I, I don't know if it'll be in 2024 that we see that or early 2025, but you know, we do see inflation continuing to come down as you continue to roll off that yeah, inflationary pressure that came during COVID. And it's taken a while, but inflation is like a locomotive, right? It takes a while to get going, it takes a while to stop, right? So it, we're in that stopping phase right now. If we were to see inflation back down, well, obviously you could expect uh, bond yields to be lower. You would expect the Bank of Canada to start cutting rates um, to normalizing uh, their policy rate. You would expect valuation. Uh, it would make valuation in certain areas of the world look better. And, and so stock market valuation. So the stock market is a discounting mechanism, right? You're always discounting future profits. Well, what, by how much am I discounting that? Well, usually it's, it's either in the inflation rate or, or uh, some government bond uh, risk-free rate. So if that comes down, then the value of, of my future profits are worth more. And that actually is positive for the stock market. So yeah, it, it, the quicker we get inflation down to 2%, the quicker interest rates kind of normalize I would say the better it is for the stock market uh, over the near term uh, and long term. Can I ask one question here? Um, you talked about, or you're talking about that 2% threshold and, and normally it sits at three or just below that. And we're so, uh, uh, it's so important to get back to that 2% benchmark. What will make the Bank of Canada blink here? Will it be actually hitting that number or that they've just paralyzed uh, the public so much that finally, okay, uncle, we give, we're going to let it, we're going to stop it at 2.3, 2.5. Realistically, the Bank of Canada will likely cut rates uh, into uh, or during a recessionary environment. Um, and inflation comes down as a result of recessions, right? So yes, you know, monetary policy by the Bank of Canada can influence or, you know, consumer behavior to try and bring inflation down. But you know, historically, when you look at it saying, when do we see the, the big drops of inflation usually coincides with recessions. And, and that's the risk that I think we're, we're facing um, over the course of, of the next say year, that is more likely to bring the bank of Canada uh, to the realization that, okay, it's time to cut rates. So should we just have a recession and get it over with like pulling off the bandaid? Well, I think we're already in there, to be honest with you. If you start to look at consumption in Canada, retail sales down year over year, you know, the, the Canadian consumer that is is unique with the impact on mortgage rates versus our US cousins or European cousins that have much longer dated mortgages. In Europe, mortgages are usually 10 or 20 years. In the United States, they're 15 to 30 years. Here, we're five years. So you know, we've been facing the impact of, of the interest rate increases almost immediately. And it's having almost an immediate impact on consumption. Whether we're in recession now uh, or headed towards one, I think it's inevitable. 
Ah, uh, okay. And and that actually, you know, I was just want to talk about the housing a little bit. You know, you have the variable rate mortgages and they're feeling it every single announcement of incre increases and, and also the ones with um, equity line of credits or any line of credits for that matter that are tied with the prime lending rate. Currently, I believe it's at 7.2%. So, you know, when they were down and you're able to get variable mortgages literally at 1.3, prime less of one or prime less three quarters, you know, very generous discounts. It's kind of funny. The discounts actually have gone away off the variable mortgages um, compared to where they were when the interest rates were a lot lower. You'd almost think it would be the opposite, but they would be immediately hit. And to your point, you know, that their consumption would drop, would, would drop immediately. Now you're, the, others, the, the other shoes are starting to fall. A lot of the mortgages pre-pandemic that were five-year were, say, 3.5%. Now they're coming off at, at six and a half. And, the, and soon enough, others didn't get five-year mortgage. They only got three-year mortgages because they're even a better rate. And so I, I've already spoken to some people and says, well, my mortgage is coming due in January and I can barely make this payment and it's going to triple. All right, do you forecast um, a glut of houses coming on the market? Do you see the keys being thrown back to the banks? Um, kind of like the 80s. This, uh, that was not uncommon because the housing prices would likely drop. So anyway, that's, those are my thoughts. What, what do you think, Philip? Well, I have to preface this, uh, Don, by saying I'm, I'm notoriously bad at uh, forecasting the real estate <laughs> market. It's a completely different animal because it is driven by uh, you know, human emotion in, in, to some extent where people need to live somewhere. But that said, if I, if I try and, and work the fundamentals into real estate, you know, certainly as costs go up, uh, the affordability goes uh, goes down and we're starting to see some pressured selling where real estate investors now are facing a mortgage that exceeds the rent that they can collect on the property. And so they're just, they're starting to sell. And we've seen a significant increase of listings, not because I think people are, are moving, but I think because investors are saying, I don't want to be holding this, you know, at a negative carry. Um, I'm going to take my money and run. I don't think we're going to be in the situation where you know, you'll see a lot of defaults or people, you know, walking away from the mortgage. I just don't think that that's likely given the equity positions that homeowners tend to have. Um, but it will be, you know, forced downsizing in some cases or forced selling by these investors that have built up you know, uh, real estate portfolios entirely on leverage and the premise that housing prices only go up. We're starting to see the opposite. And I think that's gonna that's good for the market. I think it's gonna bring bring prices down to a more realistic level. No, you're absolutely right. And I wouldn't I wouldn't be too hard on yourself, Philip. I, I think the worst predictors of real estate prices are real estate agents. Okay. It seems that there are, there are, there are only ever two markets. It's either a buyer's market and that's great, or it's a seller's market and that's great. <laughs> yeah. It's <laughs> And as of July, end of July, you know, the, the real estate market dropped a bit in the in this area here in Hamilton area. And then August, it went up a smudge, just a tiny bit, like point something. And they said, this is, we've hit bottom, it's on its way up. And then I've heard September sales were one of the lowest in terms of volume, not sure what the prices have done. And again, when you start to see the supply and less demand, that just puts, yeah, as you mentioned, um, the prices will start to drop. And we are seeing some of those, in particular investors, and having land, being a landlord isn't as much fun as everybody thinks either. All it takes is a few court cases or, or having to try to kick people out of a house. And we're seeing people that have literally will not move. And 
and then the buyer is not even able to move in. So you're seeing some of these horror stories. But yeah, the housing market has to have something to do with the general economy, though, because it's one of the big movers generally. And if if it's doing well, generally speaking, the Canadian economy is doing well. And hopefully, and maybe you would know more better than me, how does that affect the stock market? So you're right on the economy and, and housing. Uh, when you look at the the components of the Canadian economy, what makes up GDP growth, what makes up GDP overall, um, it has been disproportionately skewed to housing over the last decade. As housing starts to slow down, um, you know prices, which rolls into real estate commissions, uh, just the the natural ebb and flow of of all the peripheral. Uh, transactions that go on after buying a house. You got to get paint, you got to get furniture, you got to get appliances, whatever it might be. You know, that just all slows down. And so from the economic perspective, when we start to see housing slowing down, it is going to result in in a slowdown of the overall Canadian economy. From my perspective as an investor, it doesn't really matter to me because the housing market is not really incorporated into the stock market. You know, the banks have some exposure, but I mean, the banks are very well managed and, and well positioned to ride out any weakness in the housing side. So from the stock market perspective, it's it's immaterial. Uh, and the Canadian economy, we often say, look, the Canadian economy is not the stock market. The stock market is more globally focused as opposed to domestically focused. And, and uh, you know, to that end, you know, we can argue that we're seeing more upside for the Canadian stock market over the coming 12 months, even in the face of downside for the Canadian economy. Interesting. And I, I would think the biggest exposure uh, might be banks in terms of risk. And I have noticed some of the banks, uh, their, their performance has not been great. In fact, in, in the past, kind of like the people suggesting real estate only goes up, um, there was a time not long ago that bank stocks only go up. And that doesn't seem the case. I'm not exactly sure how much they've gone down, but certainly their yields on their dividends have gone up substantially. And it isn't because they increased their yields. It's just because the price per share has dropped. What, what do you think about bank stocks right now? I think they're priced for the worst possible scenario. And, and I think that's actually very attractive at this point. When you look at valuation of the banks, they're at levels that we haven't seen since the last time that we were facing with uh, faced with a, a modest uh, economic downturn in Canada. That was about 2015, 2016. The banks were trading at depressed levels then, um, and they're trading at the same levels today. Mm-hmm. I look at that and say, look, I don't think there's that much sensitivity uh, that the banks will have to the housing sector. Uh, again, you know, it's all about the equity that's tied up in the homes. Um, that the worst case scenario, if if the banks end up taking over the house, yeah, that means that we'd have to see housing markets or housing prices fall by say fifty percent. So that's not very realistic. So when I look at the banks, uh, you're you're right; they have a very attractive dividend that is more likely either to stay exactly where it is, if not grow as the banks have a good history of growing their dividend and, and um, banks do not want to cut their dividend. Uh, valuation is very attractive. So if you can just ride out, you know, kind of the, the little bit of volatility that we could see over the course of the next, say, maybe six, 12 months, I think uh, the three outlook for the banks is very, very attractive. Interesting. And, and I would assume the managers of the respective Canadian equity funds would be th- singing the exact same from the same uh, pages as you are, and be buying and loading up on bank stocks right now. Exactly. I had a conversation with one of our Canadian equity managers, uh, actually twice in the last two weeks on it, and and you know we have the same view that you know there's much less downside risk in the Canadian banks today 
Um, and the risks are skewed to the upside in that, you know, you could see uh, potential for significant outperformance of the banks, but you got to be patient, right? Is that going to come right. next week? Probably not. But is it over a period of time of say the next year to three years? Yes. But, you know, patients rewarded those in 2016 as well. True, true. So on that note, you're talking about banks. The banks are loaded with cash right now. They have high GIC rates. Uh, you know, GIC rates are, are pushing about a little over 5%. Um, our money market funds are about 5%. Cash in general, just sitting in the sidelines is 5%. Why wouldn't everybody just throw all their money in cash right now? It seems like, first of all, I have a feeling that there's, there's a pretty good hoard of cash anyway. There is. I, look, I think there's there are reasons uh, for certain investors to hold cash and, and hold GICs over a short period of time or maybe over a longer period of time. That's really the individual investor assessment, right? How much risk uh, do you need to take to meet your, your financial goals longer term? Um, the, the funny thing is about it, though, that... Uh, when we talk about that and we say, hey, look, you know, if, if average returns over whatever period of time is 5% and I can get 5% out of a GIC, why wouldn't I just do that? Well, the idea is because that average return incorporates or, or includes periods of underperformance, which we've just come through, matched by periods of outperformance, which you know, we could be moving towards. And so when you lock into a return of, say, 5% over an extended period of time, you're giving up all of that upside that might be necessary to meet your financial goal. Uh, because when you come out of that that GIC, rates could be two and a half percent, you know, and and we could be headed for a downturn at that point. So all you've done is just given up the potential for upside. That said, I often say, look, if anyone has a need for cash within the next twelve months, and the best place for for you is cash, not in the market, and not subject to to risk. But that's, that's always a twelve month period, and that's always the case, regardless what rates are at. You you got to protect the principal, if you need the money in 12 months, you never want to gamble. That's speculating in the markets. And so, you know what, at, at the end of the day, it's, it's putting the right investment instrument to the right goal. And at, you know, isn't it a good time to buy when it's low? So, and the stocks are a little low right now. And, uh, and so perhaps, as you mentioned, when they talk about averages and the average equity is about 6% above inflation, well, that's average. That's if you hang on. And right now, if anything, it's probably a buying opportunity. But I know we'll talk a bit about this right after the break. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. Our special guest, Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist for IG. You can find out more at donfox.net. Call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. A quick break here. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management, 905-972-7420. And our special guest today, Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist with IG. And we got a short break here, so you got to squeeze as much in here, Don, as you can. <laughs> it's pretty hard with the kind of data that uh, Philip brings to the table here. But one of his jobs is tilting our, our very well-run portfolios. I profile discretionary tactical tilts is what he does. And so it's, it's a combination of having Canadian equities, U.S. equity, emerging markets, international equities, un 
all uh, managed by many different invest um, managers, depending if they're growth or value or small cap. And then on top of that, you have fixed income, which has got private, private and and public and and global bonds. You know, it, it's a mix of many different areas. At the end of the day, it's very well run without the tilts. But then you add Philip Peterson to the mix, and he then massages it to say, okay, every quarter, how should I just change it slightly? So first of all, how have the tilts worked out in the past year? Well, the past year, I'd say we've had um, a, a positive, re- we've had positive results out of the tilts, but it's it's really a tale of two parts of the year. The first half of the year, the, you know, the last 12, the first six months of the last 12 were quite positive where we were underweight U.S. equities, overweight international. Um, and at that time, we were neutral equity fixed income. We might have been a little bit overweight equity um, yeah, versus uh, fixed income. In the last six months, though, I'll say that you know some of those uh, that additional performance that we were able to deliver from the asset allocation was eroded away. And frustratingly, Don, they, it was eroded away on the back of seven companies in the United States that we couldn't have predicted that just drove the S&P 500 higher. Yeah, these are you know, NVIDIA, Tesla, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Apple, um, and, uh, and Facebook. Those are the seven. Um, and, and that's largely been the performance on the S&P 500. You strip out these companies and, and the U.S. equity market is essentially flat. Um, and so our view was that the U.S. equity market, as I said, you know, we, we were expecting a little bit more lackluster returns out of it and it came out strong, largely on the back of these seven companies. But, you know, being underweight, the U.S. Um, did, did detract a little bit, but, you know, not, not in a significant way. Overall, like, and this is what I, I say, when we talk about the tilts, it's not an all or nothing. You know, as you say, uh, Don, you know, we're massaging the portfolio. We're just you know, literally, it is a tilt towards one way or the other. So we still captured, I would say, 90% of, or 95% of the upside of the U.S. equity market. But that missing that just a little bit did take away from the uh, outperformance that we had in the first six months. That said, you know, I'm still confident in, in the positioning. Um, it's still like how we're positioned today with that underweight U.S., overweight the rest of the world. Um, and now uh, in the last six months, we have shifted to a slight overweight bonds, fixed income uh, versus equity. And when you say overweight bonds, what, what exactly? So let's say the neutral position would be 20% fixed income or bonds. How much would you have moved it to? Right. If, if the neutral position is say 20%, now we're about 22. Oh, okay. So about a 10%. Exactly. Um, a, re- a 10% relative increase uh, to that asset class. And so U.S., would you say though that your your tilts would have reduced the volatility? Yes, yeah, we can see that uh, you know the volatility on the overall portfolio is less than than uh, what we would have had otherwise. And, and I think that's also extremely important. So one thing is is to say, okay, the return was the same or slightly under, but the other side of it is how much volatility did you take off the table? And and I can tell you firsthand when I'm speaking with clients, they want the highest return with the lowest amount of risk. Yeah. And, and hope, and I think that's what your tilts are also trying to achieve. They are. And I, well, what's interesting is, so while my tilts, you know, the, uh, I, I would say over the last year, they actually added value 
um, last six months is where, you know, we, we balance things out, but the underlying managers then, and you talked about this done with the portfolios that we manage, there are many different layers to it. So I don't buy and sell the individual stocks or bonds. We, we contract out with uh, what we believe are the best managers or best in class managers in, in the world to do that. They've actually done just a fantastic job on the security selection such that, you know, the, the performance of the portfolios, uh, has been very rewarding. Yeah, and, and when you're saying some of the best managers, you know, you're looking at McKinsey, BlackRock, some of the private equity managers. Um, you, you deal with these uh, uh, more on a, a daily basis than I would. Um, any standouts that have just hit it out of the park? You know, I think we, we don't try to have standouts that hit it out of the park. It's more, you know, everything that we do is trying to add just incremental performance along the way. So I would say it's it's the underlying managers that are doing their job um, that we hired them for. And that's great. And at the end of the day, their job is exactly what you're trying to do. Best return they can get, having to stay in their lane. They can't go outside of their lane. They can't all of a sudden say, okay, I want to buy these type of stocks. They're not allowed to. So they're trying to stay in their lane, highest return, least amount of risk. And if they can achieve that, and then you can achieve your side of moving here and there to massage the portfolio to add a little bit of more value, then that's the perfect world. And that's what I profile discretionary is all about. It's this portfolio um, suited for investors that don't mind somebody like yourself moving the money. And that's where the discretionary word comes from. It's at your discretion every quarter to make some changes to it. And I think it's a fantastic product. I love it. And all my generally speaking, it is part of all my clients' portfolios. We well, are I'm, planning. I'm... Your... Sorry, let me interrupt here, Phil. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at 905 905- 972-7420 at IG Private Wealth Management. Our special guest is Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist with IG, and we're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning our financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Our special guest today is Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist with IG. And it's our last segment to squeeze everything in here, guys. Yes, and I've got four areas and I'm trying to, I want to get them all in and have your viewpoint on a few things. One is the Canadian dollar. It was at 76 cents back in July. Now it's hovering around 73 cents. And it used to have something to do with oil prices. They seem to be pretty high. What's going on with our dollar? Yeah, the, the, you know, the dollar has been, been interesting in that historically, the Canadian dollar against the US dollar moves on two things, oil prices and interest rates. In the last, I would say, six months, maybe 12 months, the correlation between the Canadian dollar and oil has completely broken down, meaning it's not reacting to oil price moves much at all. Um, and so it's all been about interest rates. And, and that is what has been driving the Canadian dollar lower over the near term is the view that, well, maybe the Federal Reserve raises rates further and the Bank of Canada doesn't. Therefore, that puts downward pressure on the Canadian dollar. Would it not also have an effect on inflation, having a low dollar when it's trying to buy you know, imported goods such as groceries? 
This is the challenge that the Bank of Canada has is that, you know, do you step in to defend the dollar, which helps ease inflation um, by cutting interest rates, but by also cut or sorry, by raising interest rates further, but you raise interest rates further and you can push the Canadian economy deeper into uh, an economic uh, economic risk, which I think they're not necessarily trying to engineer. They do want to avoid and, and create that you know so-called soft landing. So they're they're up against a rock and a hard place right now. Okay, well, to avoid that soft landing and all this uneasiness, it used to be, let's all just go buy gold or silver or precious metals, and that's our savior. That's where, and, and usually there's a run-up in gold and silver. And I was just checking out the gold prices, and really, they haven't done that well. They're down about 9% in the last six months. Silver's down almost 15 in the last six months. They're up a little bit on the year, like 1% or 2%. What's going on? Isn't, isn't that supposed to be the safe haven? It is supposed to be safe haven, um, and you tend to see it over the long term. But you know it, what's been happening is that pesky U.S. dollar that's been so strong against most major currencies around the world, including the Canadian dollar. As the U.S. dollar rises, you tend to see the gold price of gold fall, uh, gold being priced in U.S. dollars, and so that's really what's been going on in my mind. It's that the U.S. dollar has been running uh, interference against what otherwise we think would be a higher price for gold. Is do uh, portfolios invest very much in gold, or is that because of that kind of a hedge? Equity managers tend to you know, uh, stay away from speculating on the price of gold itself. Um, you know, you you can access gold through gold ETFs or gold funds that invest in bullion. Um, but uh, but when you look at equity managers, I mean, Canadian equity managers will own gold companies, but that's based on just the fundamentals of the company itself, and and rarely includes speculation on the price of gold. Well, there's there's always a circus going down south of, south of the border, Republicans versus Democrats. Um, it's no different now. There's talk of this deck ceiling. They got through that. And I guess the Speaker of the House is now gone. They got a new one. We're trying to get a new one. What does all this have to do with portfolios or money managers? Largely nothing. It's Good. it's uh, it's fun to <laughs> yeah, it, it's fun to watch. It's like, you know, it's it, it's entertaining uh, as long as you're not in the United States, I suppose. But um, yeah, this is just political showmanship that from the market perspective, again doesn't tend to have a meaningful or lasting impact. Yes, and that's good because it always makes headlines and they always, everybody has this feeling it has a lot to do with the stock market, but it's more headline grabbing again, like many of the other noise that we've gone through on this podcast that affects the market, that it doesn't affect the market, but it affects the psyche of the investor and and how uneasy they feel. And then of course, if the market goes down that day, my my recommendation is get away from watching cnn get away from the headlines listen to this or a podcast that you and i'll, th- I'll go over those podcasts in a second but talk about headline grabbing Our, the alberta premier feels we should move um the cpp will go to the alberta pension plan and they feel that they have 53 percent ownership of this big giant fund that is not actually not too different than what you're doing it's a managed portfolio um what what do you think about the truth of that I, to be honest with you, I'm not sure what that means. Uh, I think it would be very difficult to break out um, the components of CPP just for Alberta. I, I know that Quebec has its own pension plan that was set up you know, many, many decades ago. I don't, I don't, to be honest with you, don't, I, I try and stay away from things like that. <laughs> I don't have an opinion on it. I'll leave that up to, to the federal government and the provincial government of Alberta to, to sort out. 
That's good. It's actually good not to have an opinion on it. It, it seems to be like bubble gum for the mind, these type of things. And uh, it really don't have does not have a lot to do with the stock markets. But for those people that I did Google it, and you wouldn't believe the number of threads and replies, the vast majority are saying, leave my Canada pension plan alone. Um, and, and then, of course, most people are saying they might have ownership of about 16%, not 53% of the Canada pension plan. So quite interesting. Now, you do a podcast called The Living Markets. And I'll repeat that. It's called The Living Market. So definitely, it's about a five to seven uh, minute podcast. I have noticed that you're not on it all the time anymore. No, what uh, what I'm trying to do is I've got a team uh, spread out across Canada. I've got a colleague in Quebec. Uh, obviously, he does the, the version in French for any Francophone listeners. Uh, and then a colleague out in Edmonton. And so I spend a lot of time on the road. And sometimes I just can't uh, can't get to it. Um, and so we've planned for my colleague Ashish Uterid to step in and uh, and speak on behalf of the team uh, when uh, when I'm not available. Fantastic! It's a great podcast. But if you were to say sum up this whole um, podcast today, if you will, uh, to the investors, stay patient. Long term markets are lower. I don't know what would you suggest. Well, I, the theme of this week's podcast is keep our emotions in check. And I think that's that's one of the best things that we can do when we think about investing is that often we can invest passionately uh, and we need to be a little bit more dispassionate uh, in order to make rational decisions when it comes to where we put our money. Fantastic. And again, thank you so much for joining the show, Philip. It's always a pleasure having you here. And I'm sure everybody listening today got a lot out of the segment. Well, thank you for having me. We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. DonFox.net to find out more. Call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Our special guest has been Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist with IG. Gentlemen, a fascinating show. Thank you so much. Have a great week. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.